Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study Class. Uh, we're broadcasting live here from Collegedale, Tennessee, and we're broadcasting in high definition. So some of you folks that come to class every day or that aren't watching online, we've upgraded um, our digital capabilities. So the online experience, I'm guessing, is a lot clearer, crisper. It's great for the folks that are watching. It's frightening for the folks that are behind the camera. Me and my pores are a little afraid of being filmed in high def, but it's good. We have a new camera in the back of the room, that, a little GoPro that gives it a different perspective of the classroom as a whole. So we're glad you're here. We've got some visitors here from faraway places in class, and I know we've probably got some new folks watching online, so welcome Glad you've joined us today. Um, my name is Lori Atkins. I am substituting for Dr. Tim Jennings is out west doing some continuing education this weekend. That's why he's not here. Um, just a couple of announcements. We've got some exciting things going on in the ministry right now. We talked a little bit last week about the Remedy Bible app that we have available for mobile devices. It is now free and available in both the Android and Apple store for your apps, um, and it's also available on the My Bible app, which I have been using this week to prepare the lesson, and if you haven't tried it, I recommend it. It's super useful. If you look in your app store and look up the My Bible app, I'm going to show you a little bit. One of the most useful features is it gives you the ability to display two different versions, so I have the Remedy here and I have the NIV here, and they scroll simultaneously so it's very nice to be able to compare versions and there's there's hundreds of versions on here and paraphrases and translations that you can choose from so if you look up the my bible app in your app store i'm recommending it let's have a prayer and start class dear heavenly father we are grateful for um just the opportunity to be here to worship to learn more about you and we ask for your presence uh, here among us to open our hearts and our minds and teach us more about what you're like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today we're studying Lesson 9. We're in our quarterly about stewardship and motives of the heart. The title of this week's lesson is Offerings of Gratitude. And as much as last week's lesson may have caused a little sadness or I don't know, tension. This week, I found a lot positive and a lot to like in this lesson. I don't know, those of you who studied it, I don't know if you felt the same. Um, but you can see kind of why, if you look at the first two paragraphs in Saturday's lesson, the quarterly says, Our God is a giving God. This great truth is seen most powerfully in the sacrifice of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Or in this verse, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God gives and gives. It is his character. Thus, we who seek to reflect that character need to give as well. It's hard to imagine more of a contradiction in terms than that of a selfish Christian. Any thoughts about that? I thought it was well said. So what is an offering? 
Is it the same as tithe? No? Is it only money? Only financial in nature? No? Y'all are going to have to help me today. You have to give me some participation. So I think just as we talked about the blessings when he opens the windows of heaven, if we're bringing the tithes into the storehouse, those blessings are not always financial. I, I think offerings may not be either. We may have means. We may have special talents or skills. We all have been given different spiritual gifts. We are even to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So I believe that the blessings we are designed to receive by cheerful giving, as well as the blessing that we can be to others, should involve more than maybe just putting a check in the plate each week and then waiting to watch Mission Spotlight to see how the money was used. I'm not sure that we're getting all the benefit that we, we were designed to get from just doing that. So this same idea kind of made me pause when I read the last sentence in the third paragraph of Saturday's lesson. And it says, on the day that Jesus welcomes the redeemed into heaven, we will see those who accepted his grace and realize that those acceptances were made possible by our sacrificial offerings. Any thoughts about that? Do we think that's going to be our first thought? It struck me as maybe a little presumptuous, maybe even a little selfish, to tie my offerings into the saving of someone else. I'm not saying that they did not, those monies were not used in the work of the gospel. I'm just not sure that's going to be our first thought. I hope it's not mine. Okay, let's look at Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson is titled, Where Your Treasure Is. And of course, this is referencing the story in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. It's a familiar text, um, and it associates the devotion and attachment of our hearts with where and what we store up as treasure. And I, I think today may be more, surely at any time in my lifetime, and maybe more than at any time, uh, there is a focus on piling up earthly treasures. Look at the words used to describe these earthly treasure chests and what can happen to them. Thieves can steal. Moths and vermin can destroy. Anyone ever had a sweater packed away? Or clothes and the moths destroyed them? I don't even want to think about what kind of vermin is being referenced here or what they might be gnawing on, but you get the point. What about inflation? What if you pile up your money and you take it and you stuff it in your mattress or you put it in, a, in an account that doesn't bear interest? What does inflation do to the value of your money? And even if you in, do invest your treasures in securities or instruments that provide a return, I'm seeing some folks out here who are old enough to remember a dot-com crash and a real estate bubble and a recent recession. So what is this pull, this 
powerful hold that the quest for earthly treasures can have on us. What do you think? Form of security. It's a form of security. And why do we need security? Because we're afraid. Because we're afraid. It's all rooted in fear, insecurity, maybe a lack of trust or a desire to control our outcomes. Does anyone else wrestle with this? Am I ju- is it just me? Yeah. Well, this tension between trust and treasure hoarding, avoidance, a desire to be able to hold on loosely, juxtaposed with the need to provide for family, send kids to college, keep up with the Joneses, fund your retirement. It's a real, it's a real dichotomy and a struggle for me. Part of that comes, I think, from seeing it play out up close and personal in my own family. So if you'll indulge me, I'll take a little personal tangent and tell you just about what I've seen in my life. My father was a dedicated provider. He worked incredibly hard, sacrificed a bunch so that we had everything we need, some of what we wanted. But we experienced a modest, conscientious, tithing, debt-free upbringing. But don't forget, my dad was born in the early 20s, the early 1920s. So he grew up during the Great Depression. And even today's very modest, middle-class status, I'm sure, looked to him like excess and abundance. My dad was also convinced that Jesus was going to come back during his lifetime. So he had no retirement to speak of. No pension, no life insurance, and no amount of urging or advice from the rest of us. I need Russell here to support my my point of view. But no advice from us could shake his belief that God would take care of them no matter what. So in their later retirement years, my mom and dad sold really the only thing of value that they had, which was their home. And those proceeds were going to have to last them the rest of their lives, pay for their living expenses, all their care for what turned out to be another over 10 years. They continued to operate even on the fixed income. They operated on a you can't outgive God philosophy. Um, and I took care of their finances uh, at that point. So I witnessed details of this phenomenon. And what I saw was, despite living many months at a deficit where more money went out than money came in, over 10 years later, when my mom passed away, she had the same amount of money in the bank as the day they sold their house. Akin to the woman in Elijah's day, whose jug of oil would not go dry, The results were so striking that it caught our financial advisor's attention, and that gave me the opportunity to witness to him and tell their story. Now, of course, Russell and I were brought up different era. We were taught to save, contribute as much to our 401k as possible, as early as possible. So there's definitely tension for me between these two approaches How much is enough? How much is too much? Or does the actual amount not even matter? 
Is it more about the heart motive, the ability to hold on loosely to however much you have, and the degree to which we trust God with how things turn out? I mean, spoiler alert, we have read the end of the book. We know how things are going to turn out. We know what's going to happen in this country, on this planet, that are going to make all of our worldly possessions, (coughs) treasures, worthless. Any thoughts about this? Yes, Wendell. The text of the day was Matthew 6, in which the passage was... Mm -hmm. If you go to Matthew 19, 29, in a different relationship, a different lesson, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times more, will be given eternal life. And in other versions it says, in this life. Interesting. And so um, sometimes... Those who are surrounding God's children are the, are the family, mm-hmm. are the providers, are the friends and fields that they have given up. And it's easy to say, well, bless the missionaries and call porters, but unless you do, right? what benefit is there? Exactly. And again, maybe not financial. Maybe you're inviting your, them into your home. For a meal, supporting their efforts. Yeah, so the third paragraph in Sunday's lesson, I thought, uh, maybe sums it up well. Uh, Matthew six nineteen through 21 contains one of the most important concepts on stewardship. Your treasure pulls, tugs, coerces, draws, demands, allures, and desires to control your heart. In this material world, your heart follows your treasure, so where your treasure is remains vitally important. The more we focus on earthly gains, the harder it is to think on heavenly matters. Have you found that to be true? All right, let's look at Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson is entitled, Stewards of the Grace of God. So several times in this quarterly, we've talked about our responsibility of being good stewards and what we're stewards of. In a previous lesson, we were told we were to be stewards of the gospel. And here we're now stewards of the grace of God. Does that strike anyone else with the enormity or weightiness of that responsibility? Sometimes I think he, he's made a bad choice <laughs> to earmark me as, as a steward of those things. So the lesson points to us to a familiar text in Ephesians 2.8 that says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But then it goes down the path that this gift of salvation is a gift we do not deserve. Which kind of makes me bristle. 
this week just as much as it did (laughs) when it was mentioned in last week's lesson. And Dr. Jennings talked a bit about this concept of what do we deserve? He talked about it last week. I think some of it's worth revisiting here. What do we mean by the word undeserving? We didn't merit it. Yes. There isn't anything we can do to achieve it ourselves. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's an appropriate definition. We didn't create this remedy that saves us. We didn't work to earn it to cure our sin condition. However, if we mean by the word undeserving that we're so worthless of such little value that we don't deserve God's love and we don't deserve his intervention to save us, that's false. For God so loved the world, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it is true we don't deserve salvation as something we earned, but we do deserve salvation as the object of God's love. Dr. Jennings gave this illustration last week. If your child disobeyed you and drank some poison, you had told him, thou shalt not drink poison, but he drank it anyway, what would your child deserve from you? Love, healing. Would they deserve you to punish and kill them? Would they deserve you to intervene and save them? Why would they deserve your intervention? Because you love them and because of who they are. They are your child. It's also who you are. Yes, in them. Agreed. But do they have to work to earn your saving interventions? No. I have this marked as optional, but I'm going to go with it. So the second paragraph in Monday's lesson says, Without grace, we would be without hope. Sin's doleful impact on humanity is too great for humans to ever free themselves from it. Totally agree. Even obedience to God's law couldn't bring life to us. After all, if any law could save us, it would be God's law. What do you think about that? What law do you think that they're talking about here? An imposed law. An imposed law, and I do think they're talking about the moral law. I think they're talking about the Ten Commandment law. So anyway, that kind of made me squirm a little bit, and I thought of some texts that says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And it also says he who finds me, and he is love, finds life. Mrs. White says the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven. So I really think your perspective, which law you're talking about, is really important where it says, if any law could save us, it would be God's law. Or if obedience to God's law brings life, if the law of love is the law of life, then is being harmony with the law of love, does it bring life? We've used the illustration many times in this class that if you choose to break the law of respiration and tie a plastic bag over your head so that you can hoard all of your carbon dioxide and not give any away, what's the wages of that? What's the result of that? 
death, but first you're going to feel lightheaded, you're going to be dizzy, you may start to sweat, you may faint, you may pass out. And at any point along that that spectrum, if you decide to remove the bag from your head or if somebody takes the bag off of your head, what happens? You revive. This is the law of life or the law of love bringing life. I had a couple more uh, more texts and quotes that that support this uh, this concept. I seek not mine own glory, but the glory of Him that sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from God, but He took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, remember, this is about way more than us. The whole controversy, we're just a little piece of it. In the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns, in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. Isn't this great? She's describing this circle of giving that we see all throughout nature, throughout the universe. Yes, Wendell. Going back to the first paragraph, I'm talking about grace. Yeah. Their first definition of grace is undeserved favor. That's as if grace is an entity that needs to be applied to a an inanimate object or a book, yes. cleanse the book, or whatever. It's not an attribute of God. Right. Grace is an attribute of God, just like other attributes we have of God. Okay. It's not something separate. Mm-hmm. We are not saved by grace. We're saved by God. We're saved yes. by who he is. It's not an external function. We are saved by him, not by something else. I totally agree. Anybody else agree with, I mean, it is, it's put out as a separate entity, not an attribute flowing out from God. It's one of the, lots of attributes of God, forgiveness, love, grace. These are the things that save us, not an entity of itself. It's been said that, you know, whenever people have prayer at the beginning of a meal, they often will say that, well, let's say grace. Right. Well, God, you, doesn't, don't, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to thank you anyway. <laughs> you know, that makes no sense. It's, it's contradictory. And I do think that they're trying to, I'm assuming maybe more than I should, I think they're trying to put forth the fact that we don't deserve it because we didn't earn it. Um, that he, he is doing it all of himself. The remedy was procured completely. It is purely himself. Yes. It, it is who God is. It is who God it's is. It's the God of who God, what God is like. Thank you for saying that. Linda. I agree with Linda, but I wanted to jump back to what you were saying about even obedience to God's law couldn't bring life to us. Yes. I think the, the law you're talking about does bring life to us, but I wanted to say the thing that helps me as a nurse grasp the idea that the Ten Commandments, that yes. law can't save you, is by comparing it to an MRI. Exactly. An MRI can't fix anything it finds. It can only find something. Yes. 
And that alerts you to the problems within that you need help for. Absolutely. The law is, is talked about as a, as a you know, guide to your path. And this type of thing, it's meant to show you the way to healing. Yeah. It doesn't heal a thing. And I do, I do think that that's probably what they were trying to portray in these passages. And Paul talks about the, the, the law couldn't make him well, basically. It was a diagnostic instrument. He would not have known what sin was were it not for the law to point out what was coveting. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it is meant to be a diagnostic instrument. I think a lot of people take it more concretely than that and are actually looking to obedience to that law to be saving. And when you are in... It, with God's love flowing through you, these are the attributes yeah. that you will have. That's what you will look for. Like. If I'm sick and I get a cure, I will stop coughing. Yes. I will stop throwing up. I will stop having a fever. I won't mess up your house with mm-hmm. whatever. You know, I will stop all these things because the law of love yes. fills me. And these show whether or not that's happening. That's correct. <laughs> and you, the symptoms resolve. You, each, all of the Ten Commandments yeah. are either not loving God or not loving other people. And it's kind of those two things in a little more detail. And all the law in of the, um, you know, to the Israelites yeah. is kind of really extrapolations of that in its various <laughs> forms, you know, how to stay healthy, how right. to govern correctly and all that kind of thing. But it all... and. You know, as Jesus and the rich young ruler said, well... You know, I've done all those things. Yeah, I've done all those things. You know, the, the law hangs on these two things. Yeah. You know, love, love, love. And so the, while this law can't save you, it can also say what's wrong right. uh, or what's right. It can point you to the need for healing, the need for a remedy. And don't forget, I mean, the context in which the, the Ten Commandment law was given, he was trying to bring folks back from a very darkened mind sort of state. They had been in slavery for over, what, 500 years? Um, and again, can you imagine sending your kid off to school and saying, okay, be good, don't murder any of your classmates today. This is the, the level at with, uh, with that they were operating at, that these were instructions that were meaningful to them. Taking them from a life for everything to a life for a life was movement forward and developing and growing them. So, so today we have two problems. We have one where keeping every bit of the commandment saves me. Right. Or we have the other bowling alley alley <laughs> where I don't have to worry about the law at all. The law is in... I'm under grace. <laughs> apply to me because it's irrelevant now. You know, yeah. it's all just friends with God. It, it, there is no purpose to that relationship. And God, and he doesn't just give us stuff, love, right. forgiveness and stuff for us to keep everything to ourselves. That's the other tendency is like, we'll, you know, we'll take all this, but mm-hmm. then we keep it. We don't, he is meant for us to live as a purpose. That's with right. a purpose. And when we get off track, the law is there to show us you're off track. Yeah. You know, there is a, a real validity. And I see people, you know, either ends of that spectrum can go off track. Absolutely. Somewhere in the middle is where we need to be. Well, and I, I still think kind of the, the key that unlocks all that is the knowledge of what God's law is. And that it's design law. It's not imposed law. Even the Ten Commandments are completely and totally design law. Um, so if you if you move from the, the view that God's law is imposed to the view that God's law 
are the principles upon which life and reality operate on, that keeps you in the middle of that perspective. That keeps you from going off one or the other end. And it, and it keeps you, it's diff, keeping a rule is different than being in harmony with the design that life was built to operate on. At least it is in my mind. When you're sick, you can try not to throw up. <laughs> exactly. I'll keep it to myself. Right, or you can put put cold, cold cloths on your head so that you don't register a fever, and you can take cough suppressant. Meanwhile, you're still terminal, yes. Agreed. In Revelation, it describes the saints as those who have a testimony of Jesus, what yes. Jesus said about God, yes. and keep the commandments. It's not enough to just believe. Right. There is an action component to yeah. it. There's, you can't just be handed a pill, bo- a bottle of antibiotics. You actually have to take have the to antibiotics, take, yeah. or they aren't going to do you one bit of good. It's not enough that Jesus died for you. You actually have to accept it and allow His Holy Spirit to make the changes inside you. Right. And that's what saves you. Yeah. Is understanding and trusting God enough to open up. And take those pills. Yeah, and apply that remedy to your life. He died formulating this medicine for you. Yeah. And, you know, and so and he offers it freely at no charge. That'd be great if we could have that here. I know. <laughs> Talk about universal health care, right? I, know. I mean, he offers it free of charge, but we ignore it. You know, we yeah. don't communicate with him. We don't study our Bibles. Right. We don't tithe our time, you know, there's a lot to a relationship with God, and, and I see issues at each end of the spectrum. Too much, too little. Yeah. You know, that combination in Revelation is Jesus' testimony and doing something. And it, you see it all the way through. Paul talks about it. You can't have faith without works. works. Thank you. That's powerful. That leads us well into Tuesday's lesson that talks about our best offering. What is that? This lesson points to another familiar story. It's from Luke 7, and it's about the woman that had the alabaster box of expensive perfume who anointed Jesus' feet just before his crucifixion. Um, I put the story in here from the Remedy New Testament paraphrase. I'll read from the Remedy. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to his home for dinner. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A local woman who had been living an immoral life learned that Jesus was at the Pharisee's home, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood by Jesus' feet, weeping, and began washing his feet with tears. Then she dried his feet with her hair, kissed them, and poured the perfume on them. When the Pharisee, in whose home they were dining, saw this, he thought to himself, If this man was really from God, he would know what a vile and sinful woman was touching him. Jesus knew his thoughts, turned to him and said, Simon, I want to tell you something. Please, doctor, tell me, he replied. There were two people, and both owed a banker a lot of money. One owed him $5,000, the other only fifty. But neither had any money to pay him back. So the banker canceled both debts and absorbed the loss. Which of the two do you think will love him more? Hesitantly, Simon replied, I would think the one who had the larger debt canceled. You are absolutely right, Jesus confirmed. Then Jesus looked toward the woman, but spoke to Simon. Do you see this woman? Even though I'm in your house, you did not provide water to wash my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You did not welcome me with a kiss, 
but this woman, from the moment I arrived, hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with inexpensive olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with the most expensive ointment. Understand how reality works. She has been forgiven much, and having received this forgiveness, she loves much. But he who accepts only a little forgiveness loves only a little. Then Jesus reassured her, You are forgiven. Your sinfulness has been removed. Any thoughts about that story? It's amazing, isn't it? I have a different view of that story than I used to. I mean, we used to talk about, obviously, this perfume, this substance that she broke open and anointed him with is super expensive. A month's wages or or a year's wages, something like that. So, I mean, that in and of itself is noteworthy. What else? Yes. Reminds me a little bit of the story of the prodigal son. Yeah. um, And and both of those were kind of paralleling goody two-shoes, self-righteous church members doing everything obligatory Mm -hmm. and and feeling as though they've earned father's respect and their inheritance. But... Um, a woman was much like the prodigal son that um, just totally just grief stricken with what they've done. Right. And they appreciate the fact that they would still be accepted, whereas the others felt more indignant. But this person isn't even good enough to be loved by you. Yeah. Do you had a comment? I used to just think of focus in on, you know, the, the woman, Mary. Mm-hmm. But I guess I ask the question now who was the greater sinner, you know? Right. Because, um, you know, he's, Simon answered and said, I guess, the, the one that's forgiven more. But yet, on the other hand, you know, the only difference may have been is that hers was exposed. Everybody knew her sin, but they might not have known. Exactly. Well, and she got to experience that full forgiveness, that full healing. She got more of a blessing because she was willing to open herself up and search me and see and receive that healing for every every deep recessed part of her life, her character. Yeah. He said she washed his feet, she cleansed his feet, but her tears were cleansing herself. <laughs> yes. Cried enough to wash. Oh, exactly. So you know that the burdens in her heart were being cleansed at that yes. point. That's a lot of tears. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's just like she cried. She knew whose feet they were. Interesting. Revelation exposure. You know, Tim made a pretty good presentation about respecting people's privacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the best examples in, in Scripture yes. of someone, Jesus, respecting someone's privacy. We know through the lady who did so much writing for our, our church mm-hmm. that Simon was actually responsible for getting this woman involved in her immoral activity. Yes. That can happen in different ways. You know, somebody needs money, so they, they kind of force them into mm-hmm. something that they never really even ever thought that they could possibly do. And then uh, there are other people, and yet here's this guy supposed to, supposed to be an upstanding member of the community. Oh, leader in the church. And, and not helping her. Instead, he's pushing her down. Mm-hmm. And so... I mean, all the stories of the Bible are just are just absolutely packed full of meaning. Of object this lessons. One especially, I think. That, that was another question I had. I mean, of 
all the stories of all the things that could be recounted of the life of Jesus, why did this story get this, this amount of attention? Yeah, Dr. Jennings also uses this story as evidence or as rebuttal to folks who are convinced that our sins, our behaviors, our acts are being erased out of record books in heaven. So because of the fear that if anybody ever saw who we really were or what we really did, no one could love us, no one could accept us. So when he says this person was forgiven much, so they love much, if our deeds and our character flaws and our illnesses of heart and mind that have been healed and remedied and restored are wiped out and we have no memory of it, What's going to be our appreciation for the physician, for the great healer who restored us back to health? It's very counterproductive, counterintuitive. Um, he uses the example, if, you, if your child had leukemia, was terminal, no hope, but a doctor came along, a new doctor with a new treatment that tried something and it worked and she was healed, she was restored to health, put back into remission, how much would you appreciate the doctor? How much love would you have for that doctor? You would owe them your life. But if you woke up the next morning and your memory had been wiped clean, you had amnesia and you didn't remember that your child was sick and you didn't remember what the doctor had brought about, would the doctor mean anything to you? Certainly not as much. And I think, you know, I've, I've probably mentioned this before, but there were tough times in my life and I kept a diary and sort of, you know, way of dealing with all that. And I thought, maybe I'll write a book someday. <laughs> right. Back to the diaries, and I started reading it. It brought back so much pain. Yes. Just reading it, I thought, number one, I don't want to write a book about all this. <laughs> I don't want to go back there. But it doesn't get rid of your memory. But you choose. I think this probably is along the lines of what may happen in heaven. The memories are there. Right. But you you don't want to keep visiting that. And dwelling on You that. You have a distinct... Knowledge that some that this bad things happen, mm -hmm. but it's so much better where you are. It's such a distant chapter, right? You know, it's there to remind you, but you don't want to keep visiting and you know exactly. talking about it and all that. You have so many better things in your life now. <clears throat> that chapter's old, right? It's not gone, right? You know what I'm saying, right? And we're we're supposedly singing the song of the redeemed. We're singing our story of redemption. That the angels long to, to look into these things. And again, we, we can't sing that song. We can't sing our story if we don't have cognizance of where we came from and how much was done for us and how much we were healed. The, how big the 180 degrees were that, that we turned around from. I think that's going to be really important. Um, I found this account from Mrs. White in The Desire of Ages, and she's basically telling the story a little bit from the woman's uh, perspective, and I thought it was interesting. She had sought to avoid observation, and her movements might have passed unnoticed, but the ointment filled the room with its fragrance and published her act to all present. Mary heard the words of criticism. Her heart trembled within her. She feared that her sister would reproach her for her extravagance. The master, too, might think her improvident. Without apology or excuse, she was about to shrink away when the voice of her Lord was heard. Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? He saw that she was embarrassed and distressed. 
He knew that in this act of service, he had ex- she had expressed her gratitude for the forgiveness of her sins, and he brought relief to her mind. The fragrant gift which Mary had thought to lavish upon the dead body of the Savior, she poured upon his living form. Mary knew not the full significance of her deed of love. She could not answer her accusers. She could not explain why she had chosen that occasion for anointing Jesus. The Holy Spirit had planned for her, and she had obeyed his promptings. Inspiration stoops to give no reason, an unseen presence. It speaks to mind and soul and moves the heart to action. It is its own justification. Christ told Mary the meaning of her act, and in this he gave her more than he had received. As the alabaster box was broken and filled the whole house with its fragrance, so Christ was to die. His body was to be broken, but he was to rise from the tomb, and the fragrance of his life was to fill the earth. And I think it's wonderful that... Uh, she got it. She listened to Jesus. She understood that he was going to die. Yes. She knew this is what she wanted to do. She did it ahead of time. And she listened to the Holy Spirit. She listened to those promptings. But everybody else seemed like to, to miss the fact that Lewis. he was sick. Yeah, I'm going to die. This is going to Even his disciples, who he kept telling. <laughs> and she, with all her many sins and blah, 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 she loved much. I mean, she... Her heart was open, and she understood what he was saying, and she realized the reality of it, and she was reacting to that. That, That's a a deep realization, like you said, that even the people closest to him had not gotten yet. When I was thinking about how she was so grateful that she had been forgiven so much, Mm -hmm. she was in total uh, acknowledgement of how far she had come and how he brought her back (coughs) to a, a better frame of mind, uh, how to live. And she was surrounded by these other people who never had degraded themselves, if you want to call it that, to her level. Mm-hmm. At least not in their minds. Yeah, in their minds. Yeah, because their hearts were a little bit more closed off, self-sufficient. And I realized that to those who have um, been redeemed, who will be in heaven with the angels who never were as degraded as us, we are that woman. Yes. We were the ones who were just going to be so relieved because we had fallen so badly. And he fixed us and he cured us. This this is a really wretched planet. Um, I used to wonder why in the world Christians would say that when I was young with my (laughs) Christianity. But as I see what life was supposed to be like here and what it's going to be like here and what goes on now, I'm like, oh my gosh. And you can only take so much being in this war zone, mm-hmm. there's a lot of suffering that goes on. Absolutely. But um, the angels never fell like uh, the other humans that were in that dinner that weren't at, at Mary's level. But they're still not going to have such a relief that they had come from such horrendous circumstances like we have here on earth. And we are going to just be so, you know, just, just so grateful yes. that we're going to be much more like that woman. Yes, I mean, and we're grateful now, and in case we don't get to this point in the lesson, I'm going to say it. That is the privilege of offering. It's from a heart of gratitude. It's really our only means of expressing this gratefulness of what Christ has done for us 
here and now and through eternity, our offerings are, are it. That's the way, that's the avenue he's given us to express that gratitude, which is huge. Yes. I would dare say our greatest offering is not money. It's, I, it's service. It's, it's our life. To save all of his children. If we had kids that were in a war zone, he would love for people to go in there and yes. pull them out. And that's what he wants. He wants to save as many of his children as possible. And that's what would make him the most happy, is to go in there and save his kids and pull them out. Yes. And money gives financial backing to print out literature and mm-hmm. like them build buildings. But the greatest offering is to do a service for God to help save his children. And it's what makes us most Christ-like. This is the example that he gave us. Yes. Talking about stories that Christ told that have to do with offering, I thought of the Good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. We often think about the little bit of money he gave to the innkeeper. We think it was a little bit. Really, his true offering was his initiative, his willingness to be late for wherever he was going. Yes, to be bothered. He also gave care, he was is an offering of praise of service mm-hmm. to God and taking care of this person who needed his help. Yes. You know, and so most of the offering that was given by the Good Samaritan was not monetarily. Totally agree. It, it was service. Yes. And reflexively, you know what I mean? I don't think he sat there and thought, eh, should I do this or not? It was as reflexive to him to help as it was reflexive to the other two to not help, I think. So that reminds Paulie of the good Palestinian. Yes. You know, because Sumerians and Palestinians didn't mix. Right. And because Sumerians there was much hostility. Of things that were off kilter. Yes. And um, God, the religion of the Israelites was mixed with other mm-hmm. religions with the Sumerians. So they didn't even have anything to do with each other. No. So it's like... You know, a Palestinian, all these rabbis coming by, an Israeli, yes. and a Palestinian comes by and actually takes care of it. Exactly. That would be more something we would understand in today's way. Yeah. All right, we have a comment in the back, too. Simply the outpouring of the changed heart, that other-centered love that the Samaritan demonstrated, mm-hmm. to be able to have that heart of caring, and that that heart of caring, we hit our transformation from realizing God's incredible love for us. Yes. And that it's not a, he's not up there condemning, he is there wooing us to him and drawing us to him. So it's simply an outpouring of and a privilege to share with Absolutely. the blessings that he's given us. And again, I mean, we've talked in this class that when we are healed, when we are restored to God's design, just like the law of respiration, we don't think about, oh, I got to breathe today. I got to take so many breaths. It will be as easy for us to love other people as it is for us to breathe. It will be an involuntary motion. And if we are Christ-like, we cannot not give. It's who he is. So if we have become like him, it's what we'll do. Okay. Running short. So is it Let's fair look. To say that our offering is our experience, strength, and hope. Yeah. What we've been through, what God has pulled us out of, because of our choices, we share with other people mm-hmm. to help them. It's to me, it's our most powerful witness. It's my only witness is for me to tell the story of my experience. Yes. So when I give. It helps me to develop mm-hmm. my character to be like the heart of God. Yes. The giver heart. 
Yes, in fact, Thursday's lesson is called The Experience of Giving. Is there an experience of giving? Yes. I personally have witnessed for 50 years someone in my family that has um, the alabaster box principle always. She is an amazing person. She's my Mm sister-in-law. And she goes to the foot of the cross every day and asks the Lord to send her to where she needs to minister. Wow. And because she has had no... She has had... um, access to whatever she needs money-wise. And she has just used this principle so many times on people unexpectedly, anonymously. When she sees a need, she ministers. And even to people that are homeless, Mm -hmm. invited into her house, and she has given them the most beautiful Sabbath experience where she pulled out her finest of everything to minister to these homeless people. She is an incredible person with the alabaster box, um, <clears throat> using that as her ministry. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Has anybody ever had that experience? Has anybody ever found out about a need? And I'm not talking about just financial, but found out about a need, been in the right place at the right time, or been prompted and have been able to meet that need and be a blessing to someone? Tell me if the blessing you received was not exponentially more than anything you could have given to the person you, whose need that you met. Has anybody experienced that? I mean, it is an amazing, it's addictive. I'm, I guarantee you this woman is addicted to that feeling, to that blessing, and I guarantee she's blessed herself more than the blessings that she gives out because it is an amazing experience. That's the wonderful part about experiencing that full cycle of love. The first soul that circle. The centered love that, that God has. Yes. And that it is incredibly soul feeling to be a part of his, <clears throat> his process. Yes. So the first paragraph in Thursday's lesson states, if Christ came to reveal to us the character of God, which we know he did, one thing should be clear by now. God loves us, and he wants only the best for us. He asks us to do only what would be for our own benefit, never to our detriment. This would include, too, his call for us to be generous and cheerful givers of what we have been given. The free will and generous offerings we give are as much a benefit to ourselves, the giver, as they can be to those who receive them. Only those who give this way can know for themselves just how much more blessed it is to give than it is to receive. Isn't that great? Mrs. White says this about the experience of giving. Even the very poor, get your mind around this, even the very poor should bring their offerings to God. They are to be sharers of the grace of Christ by denying self to help those whose need is even more pressing than their own. The poor man's gift, the fruit of self-denial, comes up before God as fragrant incense. And every act of self-sacrifice strengthens the spirit of beneficence in the giver's heart, allying him more closely to the one who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. She also says the reward of whole-souled liberality 
What a great statement that is. Whole-souled, as in your entire soul's liberality, is the leading of mind and heart to a closer fellowship with the Spirit. So that sounds like there is a real change happening in us through this experience of giving. One more. The Lord does not need our offerings. We cannot enrich him by our gifts. Says the psalmist, all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. Yet God permits us to show our appreciation of his mercies by self-sacrificing efforts to extend the same to others. This is the only way in which it is possible for us to manifest our gratitude and love to God. He has provided no other way. Is this what I was talking about? I think this is what Mary understood. This was her only avenue. Breaking the alabaster box was her only option to, to try to show him the gratitude that she felt for what he had done for her. I don't think God intends for us to be a lake of spiritual gifts. A reservoir. <laughs> giving is like you know, removing the dam at the end of the lake. Yeah. So that the stuff that's in there can go out so new stuff can come in. Yes. And so we're called to be part of the river of life. Right. Not the lake of life. And the only body of water we know of that has detached itself and not decided to give anything of its its contents is called what? The Dead Sea. It's so evident in nature. So we'll wrap up. We'll wrap up with this. This is a quote from Friday's lesson. The spirit of liberality is the spirit of heaven. The spirit of selfishness is the spirit of Satan. Christ's self-sacrificing love is revealed upon the cross. He gave all that he had, and then he gave himself that man might be saved. The cross of Christ appeals to the benevolence of every follower of the blessed Savior. The principle illustrated there is to give, give. This carried out in actual benevolence and good works is the true fruit of the Christian life. The principle of worldliness is to get, get, and thus they expect to secure happiness, but carried out in all its bearings, the fruit is misery and death. Any closing thoughts on offerings? One other thing, uh, it says in the, in the quarterly, the Greek word, we all know the text, God loves a cheerful giver. Why does he love a cheerful giver? Because that's how we were designed. We were designed to be free givers. Does he not love begrudging givers? <laughs> he still loves them, but they don't experience the blessing that comes from giving cheerfully. But anyway, this this word that is translated cheerfully, apparently the Greek word is the same root word that we get the word hilarious from. So that should give you some inclination of what he's trying to instill in us, the attitude that we have when we're giving of ourselves and of our means. So thanks for, thanks for your participation today. Let's close with prayer. Father, we are so grateful, and we're grateful that because we're grateful, you've given us an avenue to express that gratitude, and that's by giving of our time and our talents and our means and even ourselves in service as an offering to you. So... Teach us to be like like the woman we heard about today. Let, let us ask you every day, send us 
where we can be of most use, of most service, and where we can provide a blessing for others and receive that blessing ourselves. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.